everyone and welcome back to Critical Conversations. Today I'm joined by Siobhan Nolan. Siobhan is the Clinical Course Coordinator for the Neuroscience Postgraduate Diploma Programme. Um, she teaches at the RCSI and she's working in the Beaumont Hospital in the neurointensive care. Siobhan, thank you so much for coming in and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. No, we're delighted. Delighted to have your expertise. Um, Siobhan, I suppose we'll just start with, can you tell us um, about the nursing management of a patient with traumatic brain injury in the first 24 hours? Yeah, of course. Um, I suppose the first thing to note is uh, traumatic brain injury as a whole is quite a large topic. Uh, so trying to, it can be quite difficult to condense it down, but I, I'll do my, be- my best to kind of, um, to make it kind of the most straightforward way that you can follow for the nursing care element. But I suppose the first thing to mention would be the fact that our key focus in the management of a traumatic brain injury is prevention of life-threatening complications. And these are going to be caused as a direct result of um, the traumatic brain injury. These are be known as secondary injuries. So I guess it's important to mention, first of all, the difference between a primary and a secondary injury. So a primary injury would be the likes of your road traffic accident, your assault, your sporting accident, or a farming or workplace accident, or even non-accidental injuries. And they can happen for a very, very wide range of reasons. Um, your morbidity for traumatic brain injuries can be roughly about 16%, um, but the individuals would be at higher risk in kind of the younger age category between the ages of 16 and 24. Um, and your lifestyle can greatly impact on your risk of traumatic brain injury as well. So if you read a, read a lot of the reports that we've had um, from Ireland, say for C2H, VOH, so your alcohol and traumatic brain injury, about 31% of TBIs um, involve alcohol. Um, and even if you're looking at when traumatic brain injuries are most likely to happen, the weekends and bank holidays would account for about 54% of TBIs as well. So you really have to kind of look at lifestyle as being a massive impact. Um, it's important to mention as well TBIs and road traffic accidents that over the last decade, our incidence of TBIs has reduced significantly um, that are associated with road traffic accidents, which is fantastic. But what is very interesting during COVID, we actually saw a slight increase in high speed road traffic accidents and whether that was linked with less cars on the road, we're not sure. But it's just quite interesting to see how those statistics can change, you know, so easily and depending on kind of what's going on in society. So your different primary injuries would include the likes of uh, skull fractures, contusions, subdural hematomas, epidural hematomas, diffuse axonal injuries and contracoup injuries. And they can happen either one side of the brain or they can uh, involve involve both, so both hemispheres, and they can involve one or more lobes. So your primary injury is what happens when a patient actually kind of before they come in. So it's before they actually land in the emergency department. This is something we can't prevent. What we're looking at when we're managing our TBIs is the secondary injury. So this is an injury that occurs after the initial injury. Um, So management strategies will be aimed at preventing or limiting these injuries. And we have a specialized traumatic brain injury protocol that we use in Beaumont Hospital. Uh, This was developed by the Brain Trauma Foundation and also in line with the SIB ICC guidelines. So these are the Seattle International Severe Traumatic Brain Injury Consensus. Um, If you want to look at these guidelines, they are available um, on the HSE website. If you are to go to HSE website and just search traumatic brain injury Beaumont, it will show you our guidelines. So by having a set set of guidelines, we can try and prevent these kind of secondary injuries, which would include the likes of cerebral edema, cerebral hypoxia or cerebral ischemia. And if these kind of elements of secondary injury are left untreated, they will lead to an increase in your ICP. And the higher the ICP gets, 
then the higher risk the brain has of herniating. So the brain will essentially herniate down towards the brainstem, blocking flow to the brainstem. And that's when an individual suffer from brainstem death. So our key kind of preventative measures are going to be maintaining a good cerebral perfusion pressure, known as CPP, and our cerebral blood flow. Other things that uh, our TBI patients would be at severe risk of um, after admission would be the likes of weight loss, consumption of uh, lean body mass, uh, mainly your skeletal muscle mass. They can go into nitrogen, um, acidosis, water and salt retention. And all these basic kind of changes and alterations leave the patients prone to immune uh, suppression, to increase the susceptibility of infection. They can get sepsis uh, and generalized organ failure, which is going to prolong someone's admission to ICU. So not only are we trying to prevent the likes of brain herniation, we're also trying to manage the rest of the organs that can be greatly affected from the traumatic brain injury. So we're looking at really kind of a head to toe total body management and um, with our guidelines. And um, so I suppose, how do we manage uh, how do we manage that and prevent our ICP from going up? Um, when you look at the TBI guidelines that we have from Beaumont, it's divided into four separate steps. OK, this is in line, as I said, with the SIBICC guidelines. The steps are very comprehensive and it's all treatment strategies and they don't necessarily have to be treated in sequence. So it depends on the individual. Everyone will say about a TBI that, you know, each TBI is completely different. They all respond very different and we all have to treat them very much individually. Um, but if you go through these steps, you can step jump from step one to step four if that's what's best for your patient. Now, I'm not going to go through in the step sequence just for this because it can be quite difficult to differ differentiate the different steps due to the amount that's in them. They're very comprehensive. Um, so for the purpose of this, I think the best way to go through our approach would be looking at our ABCDE uh, um, version of assessment um, because it's the most comprehensive. So... With any TBI that comes in, that would be um, kind of a severe TBI, meaning that they came in with quite a low GCS, we'd be looking to intubate and ventilate these patients. This will mean that we can manage their airway safely and also we can manage all their gas exchange because the likes of their oxygenation and the carbon dioxide are so important in maintaining that ICP and making sure that enough oxygen is getting to the brain. So we want to avoid hypoxia at all costs. So we would maintain our SpO2 is greater than 97%. It's a little bit higher than our normal and um, what we'd look at on the likes of an eye news normally we go 94 to 96 percent kind of aiming to prevent oxygen toxicity by giving too much but because these patients are so compromised we do like to give them a little bit of a higher level of 97 and we'd always maintain our po2 greater than 11 on our abg mm -hmm. they're already circulatory kind of compromised so essentially we want to try as much as we can to get enough oxygen around the body as we can uh, we'd generally give volume control ventilation, uh, generally in the mode of SIMV, so synchronized intermittent uh, mandatory ventilation. Um, by giving volume control, it means we can manage that tidal volume a lot closer, making it a lot easier to manage the likes of our carbon dioxide levels. It also means that we can give more kind of a lung protection strategy as well. Um, so we kind of mainly manage that as well as keeping that ICP nice and down without adding too much pressure into the equation. So we generally aim for the usual of people five, unless they need more, maybe they've aspirated, they could have a pneumonia um, developing, then they might need a bit more of a peep. And our tidal volume with the lung protective strategy would still aim the six to eight mils per kg. VAP prevention is so important because um, kind of, as I said, it's those secondary things that can happen, even pneumonias that could actually lead um, to higher mortality rates in these patients. So we have to manage our, our VAP prevention in, uh, with these patients as well. 
Um, ultimately, we want to avoid borrow trauma, lung injury, and improve gas exchange. Um, we've been monitoring regular ABGs. Um, this is to, as I said, monitor our PO2s uh, above 11, but also our PCO2s. And generally, we aim between 4.5 to 5 for our CO2s. Um, now, carbon dioxide has a unique ability to both vasoconstrict and vasodilate. If the carbon dioxide level is too low, it'll cause vasoconstriction, meaning that we're going to be affecting the amount of uh, perfusion our um, different areas of our brain are getting and um, because there's too much constriction in those vessels. If we have the CO2 level then too high, you're going to have vasodilation. Because of that, your map is going to drop down and that is going to start to force up your ICP. Uh, so basically everything affects your ICP with TBI, <laughs> you know, trying to trying to find the balance. Um, but we'd aim for normally the 4.5 to 5 on those CO2s. Yeah. And it might mean that if your patient's carbon dioxide level um, is starting, or if your patient's ICP level is starting to go up, sorry, it might mean just pulling a gas and having a look what the CO2 is, checking to see if it's within our guidelines of 4.5 to 5. If not, uh, we can change um, and we can alter the CO2 to try and get into that level. And it may help reduce uh, that ICP. Um, we'll generally have the patients in a 15 to 30 degree of head elevation, both for chest management and ICP management. Um, now, in saying that, some traumatic brain injury patients love sitting nearly 90 degree upright and some patients like to be flatter. So it all depends on the patient's ICP and how they're managing with it. Um, if they prefer to be up at a 45 and it keeps the ICP lower, by all means, keep them at that height if it means we can keep the intracranial pressure lower for that patient. Um, and then our additional is making sure that we're suctioning regularly. Um, we don't want any respiratory rattle that could cause the ICP to go up, giving regular nebs. Um, and we can allow for an occasional cough as well. Some people think the patient has to be absolutely flat. Um, we would heavily sedate, but you can allow for that occasional cough as long as it's not affecting the ICP. If our ICP would start to go up, we might need to look at either adding more sedation or even like a neuromuscular blocking agent just to try and uh, prevent that coughing that would cause that ICP to go up, which is really going to impact the brain if it goes high for too long. Mm -hmm. In terms of circulation, um, we would avoid hypertension at all costs because it's going to cause ischemia and it's going to cause cell death, which we don't want. So generally, we'd be administering noradrenaline or vasopressor, and that is to maintain our MAP and our ICP. Uh, our MAP, we generally aim at 18 above um, of milligrams of mercury. So 18 above milligrams of mercury, which by helping, by having that level of, um, of a MAP, we can actually help reduce the, IC, the ICP as well. So if we look at our, that term I mentioned already, cerebral perfusion pressure, um, our cerebral perfusion pressure is made of our MAP minus our ICP. So all of them are very much interconnected. If we have a change of our CPP, automatically our ICP is going to go up. Similarly, if we have a drop in our MAP, it will also cause our ICP to go up. So we have to be very cautious when we're manipulating these numbers that we don't have an offset of the intracranial pressure as well um, at the same time. Our transducer for these patients, we will maintain at the external auditory meatus rather than the phlebostatic axis, which we'd normally do for our um, intensive care patients. Our general intensive care patients, we'd be keeping it in the mid-atrium kind of line, which is our phlebostatic. We keep it at the external auditory meatus of the ear because it actually gives us a more accurate reading of that uh, cerebral perfusion pressure, so the CPP. Um, so that is one change definitely you'll notice at the bedside of these patients. We obviously have to closely monitor the BP, the MAP, the heart rate, the cardiac output, the stroke volume. And we really want to maintain that cardiac stability because at the end of the day, an unstable heart equals an unstable brain. So we need to make sure it's fully managed. 
Positioning, we like the patient in a neutral midline position. That means that having you have the patient's head straight, not kind of turned over to one side, because if the patient's head is um, perched over to one side, you could be affecting the venous return. And we're trying to maximize that venous return to make sure we're getting enough oxygenated blood up to the brain to make sure that we're providing enough oxygen, reducing the risk of ischemia in the brain. Temperature wise, um, we'd always aim for our patients to be between 36 to 37. Um, this is because your high temperature, so your pyrexia could result in vasodilation, which as I said, will cause an increase in your ICP if we over vasodilate the brain. Um, but we no longer kind of advise the full active cooling um, due to the negative benefits kind of associated with. So instead, we, we target temperature control or else target temperature management. Uh, so TTC or TTM would be the terms you'd see in the literature. And that's maintaining that temperature between 36 and 37. Um, pedal pulses. So a lot of this you'll see kind of our basic nursing care we're doing as well. So monitoring our pedal pulses. If you're administering vasopressors to your patient, uh, we're putting them at very high risk of loss of pulses, ischemia, mottling to the fingers and toes. Unfortunately, our bodies are only going to focus on the most important organs, the brain, the heart, the lungs. Um, so our poor fingertips and our poor toes are, um, might be suffering um, with a reduced perfusion. So keep a very close eye on pedal pulses. Our electrolytes kind of closely linked in there with our cardiac stability as well. Uh, we wouldn't want our patient to be showing any kind of arrhythmias. Uh, we would want any PVCs, so monitoring our magnesium, our phosphates, our potassium. And I suppose the electrolyte kind of uh, biggest note in neuro would be the sodiums. So we love a sodium between 140 to 150, which you say to most other kind of general um, kind of general conditions, you'd look at a sodium at 140, 150 and say, oh God, that's very, very high. But it's one of our strategies of actually preventing a buildup in cerebral edema. So it goes my hypothesis that if we have a higher level of salt in our intravascular system, automatically uh, we'll have a reduction of the amount of edema within the brain because water always chases salt. So a way of getting excess um, kind of fluid off the brain would be through the use of osmosis. So you're able to pull from an area uh, of low concentration to an area of high concentration over semipronal membrane. All my years after my leaving cert, I never thought I'd still be rhyming that off. But that's how kind of the osmosis works with our sodium. The higher level of sodium in our vessels means the less water we're going to have in our brain. And um, so it's a way of bringing down that excess swelling. Um, another kind of agent we can give as well would be giving mannitol, so our osmotic diuretic. And like that, it's to prevent that cerebral, uh, cerebral edema. It's a way of drawing excess fluid off the brain and reducing down that ICP. Neurologically, um, with these patients, generally we... Only pupil assess. We don't do a GCS assessment because we we have them fully sedated. We want them on full morphine, midazolam, full sedation. So we'll have it documented there for pupil assessment only. We'll then start doing doing a GCS assessment as soon as we start weaning any of that ventilation or any of the sedation. Um, so you kind of you will see that with these patients, if you were to do a GCS on them with full sedation, they're non-testable. You can't possibly test to see if they're having any reflex because of the amount of sedation on board. Mm -hmm. um, our ICP, so that intracranial pressure level, we like below 20. Um, this is a very generalized kind of number because it's very hard to pick a number that would suit all. So when they were developing the SIBICC guidelines, they kind of looked at the kind of the most general number that would kind of equate to the most people to reduce the risk. So you could have an individual that may be able to manage an ICP of, of say 24, 25. However, that might not be the same for another patient. So 20 is our, is our normal cutoff line. 
CPP, so the cerebral perfusion pressure, as I said, we like to have above 60. Um, and that should hopefully decrease the intracranial pressure. Um, we would generally start anti-epileptic drugs for these patients. If they have a depressed skull fracture, it'll automatically be started as a prophylactic. Um, otherwise, they're only started if they are having any types of seizure activity. But all uh, depressed skull fractures definitely have to go on to AEDs automatically because they're at such high risk of seizure activity. Mm -hmm. And the risk is when we're heavily sedating someone is you might not see that they're actually seizing. They could be subclinical seizures. Um, you won't see it like you would see a normal um, seizure. You might not see tonoclonic movements because the patient is so heavily sedated. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of sedation, then while I'm there. Um, generally, we'd be sedating with morphine and medaz. Um, so we'd be given an opiate and a benzo. Um, and the aim of sedation is to reduce the metabolic demand of the body in a hope to keep the ICP down. Um, now, our other sedation we can add in as a short acting sedation would be our propofol as well. Um, so morphine, medaz and propofol would be our most common kind of trio that we'd sedate with. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're all very high risk drugs. Um, your benzos are going to be very high risk of ICU delirium, addiction. We have to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, our morphine, obviously our opioid, these patients would be um, ventilated. So at least we wouldn't have the risk of the respiratory compromise on it. But our propofol runs a very high risk of propofol syndrome. Um, so it's, we'd be keeping a very close eye on triglycerides, CK levels. Um, and because it's that lipid-based drug, we're, we're at very, very high risk. So we'd keep an eye on those levels. And if we are in any way cooling the patient, even to 36 degrees, we might need to consider lowering that dose because the lower the patient's temperature, the decrease they're going to have in the ability to metabolize that medication as well. So we have to keep that in the back of our mind. Um, another option for sedation would be atricurium, um, so your tracheum, um, neuromuscular blocking agent um, is great as well if you're kind of having difficulty managing your ICPs, um, however we would have to look at doing training for monitoring on these patients, we want to see how neuromuscularly blocked they are um, if we are managing with that. Blood sugar levels for these patients, we would be maintaining between 5 to 8 millimoles, hyperglycemia can cause epithelial cell damage, um, blood brain barrier rupture and lactic acidosis so we really want to avoid them um, and our other general kind of management strategies would be um, further gastro and VAT protection with by administering a PPI um, giving NG or OG feeds uh, because the sooner you feed a patient the more of an improvement you might have in a clinical outcome uh, pressure area care spinal care patient positioning these are all kind of the more basic things that we have for preventing kind of um, kind of long-term injuries infection risk um, like even having an ET tube tied tightly around the neck could reduce venous returns, which we'd be very careful with that. And I suppose the last kind of little additional thing to mention would be that if the patient has any change, even if they're only in the unit two hours, they can go back for a CT scan. We might need to repeat scans. Um, if they have signs of hydrocephalus, we might need to look at putting in an EVD. If they are uncontrollable with their um, ICPs, we might need to consider doing a decompressive craniectomy where the bone flap is taken out, allowing the brain, the brain to swell. Um, and that should help reduce the ICP and reduce the risk of herniation. And then our kind of our last and final step that we'd have would be giving a, a barbiturate infusion. So actually having to give thiopentone to a patient as a an infusion um where we're completely reducing down the metabolism of the brain in the hope that we could reduce down the icp and yeah. um, so you can see kind of from what i went through there's an awful lot of steps involved when you go through each of the systems it's very very comprehensive but the hypothesis will be that if, hopefully if we follow all these steps you might be able to keep that icp reduced therefore reducing down the risk of uh, secondary injury ischemia and higher mortality rates no, it was all very systematic and quite clear 
you mentioned a couple of times about targeted temperature management. Um, what does the research say? Um, so there's been a change in the research over the last couple of years uh, with targeted temperature management. So the question always is to cool or not to cool. Um, so there was a Eurotherm trial um, conducted back in 2015, and it was looking at whether we should maintain the temperature between 32 and 35. It was called the Eurotherm 30, uh, 3235 uh, trial. Um, and they found that therapeutic hypothermia for adults with raised ICP despite the level of treatment was actually associated with poorer neurological outcomes and increased mortality. So this is a change from what we were doing up until 2015, because previously, if we were getting higher within those stages of ICP management, where the ICP was becoming uncontrollable, we would cool the patient to 32 to 40 degrees, 32 to 34 degrees. But now this trial came out and kind of told us, well, hang on, there's actually an increased mortality rate. So um, another trial was actually done in 2019. It was a larger trial and um, it's called the Polar Trial, and it was done in 511 patients. Uh, where they also um, looked at hypothermia and they were inducing us to see how soon uh, following the brain injury that it might reduce the amount of swelling. Um, now, when they kind of did this trial, they did find that it didn't support the, tr the practice again of that prophylactic or therapeutic hypothermia following the brain injury. And they found that um, it made no difference, uh, no favorable difference for neurological changes over the six months following uh, the injury. Mm -hmm. um, at 10 days, they did notice, though, that there was a, a slight increase in adverse events for the hypothermia group. So for the group who are being cooled, they actually noticed the patient was a higher risk of kind of other injuries such as pneumonia, which was actually increasing the mortality and having an offset there on the mortality rate. Um, so kind of the overall conclusion was that Actively cooling is no longer the strategy because of the increased risk to the patient. Mm -hmm. Instead, by doing targeted temperature control, TTC or TTM, targeted temperature management, if we manage uh, temperature between 36 to 37, you're reducing that risk of adverse effects associated with temperatures below 36 degrees, but also you're preventing that risk of vasodilation for when the temperature goes too high when it goes over 37. So it's better to keep that patient between the 36 to 37 mark. Yeah. Now, if they're pyrexic, um, we can look at uh, cooling the patient down with um, whether it be cooling blankets, fans, um, or even ice to cool them down to the 36 to 37, but we don't go below that level. Yeah, yeah. So it has it has changed a lot over the last couple of years, but it just shows how important it is that we're working with our policies. They're working with the SIBICC guidelines and the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines to make sure that the approach we're taking is a worldwide um, researched approach to make sure we're trying to get the best outcomes for patients. So evidence-based practice, yeah. So yeah. limit our alcohol intake. Prevent in secondary injury and prevent hypoxia. <laughs> yeah, they kind of are. They can be the big things around your traumatic brain injury. <laughs> Um, Siobhan, thank you so much. Really appreciate you speaking to us. That was brilliant. Um, and thank you to everyone who's been listening. And um, the guidelines will be added to the show notes at the end. Thanks again, Siobhan. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.